You're listening to the Village Church Podcast Show, episode 29. Dr. Keller, we're glad that you're with us today. There, there's yeah, some welcome. really exciting things coming out of Redeemer right now. Um, so, man, I would love for, for us to start just with you talking about uh, the Rise campaign and kind of how uh, what that was birthed out of and, and where that is right now. Well, that's, that's the big question. I would say that at least for the last mm, 16, 15, 16 years, Redeemer has, has uh, moved in, in the general direction of saying we really don't want to be a single large centralized church. Uh, we really do want to be a family of churches that plant a lot of other churches in the city, a growing, self-propagating family. Uh, there Actually, there were a number of different places in our, uh, our history in which we set our, our cap in that direction. Uh, in 2009, we actually uh, made a, a goal, set a goal that we would not be one church. Ten years later, we said we had a ten-year plan to get to the place where we would not be one church, but several churches that were planting other churches. Uh, it looks like that might actually um, happen sooner. But here's what the Rice campaign is after. The Rice campaign says we need to start thinking holistically. We need to not simply think of Redeemer as uh, our tribe. We wanting to increase our tribe in the city. We need to ask ourselves the question, how do you reach the whole city? Uh, and by the whole city, now New York is so massive that yeah. we, we determined that there was a million people in the center of it. And there's 8 million people inside the city limits, and there's 18 to 20 million people in the metro area, which is, by the way, the size of the entire state of Texas, but I didn't really say that. Just doesn't look it's fine. Like it's, it. it's far bigger than, like, I think there's 3 million people in Nebraska. So at least <laughs> we're, like, so at least we're looks, somewhere between... It's a lot of people. Yeah. It is. So what we did was we actually we, we, we carved out a section <clears throat> just to make sure we could see progress. A million people in the center park. Basically, it's Manhattan from the top of the park or the middle of Harlem down to the tip, about 1.1 million people. And we tried to track whether we really saw uh, new churches getting started, evangelical churches getting started. And we actually did see the needle start moving from 1989 to 1999, there were about 27 evangelical churches started. Uh, from 1999 to 2009, it was 72 evangelical churches started in that area. The number of Manhattan residents in those churches moved from uh, less than 1% of Manhattan were in those churches into, in 1989. About, um, by 2009, it was a little over 3%. And then there's been a bit of an explosion in the last five years uh, and we uh, added another 50 churches in about five years, and there's almost 50,000 people, and therefore a little more than uh, almost about 5% of the population of Center City, Manhattan, are in those evangelical churches. And we began to ask ourselves the question, what would it take to go to 15% within a, a reasonable amount of time? And we decided that would be 10 years. Uh, and you asked that question because... Uh, I do think that when a minority gets to about that size in an organization or a community, it starts to have something of an effect on the entire uh, community. Yeah. Uh, Chuck Colson used to say if, if 10 to 15 percent of the prisoners became Christians in a prison, it changed the prison. Before that, when it was smaller than that, it just changed individual lives, but it didn't really change the prison. So he said if we got there, that might actually have an impact on New York City, which, of course, probably forges the culture as much as any other city in the world. Sure. Uh, so we said, what would it take? Well, the one thing it would take is that Redeemer could not just be a, one big church. And we said, well, we've been saying all along, we've got to divide ourselves 
into several churches and then collaborate and be absolutely uh, committed to popping out new churches every single year and multiple churches. And secondly, we had to raise a bunch of money and put together a pipeline for leadership training to go to the other evangelical churches in the city, and I mean all of them, and say, we're, uh, Redeemer is going to raise money to help you start daughter churches of all these different denominations, evangelical but different denominations. And then thirdly, we decided that it's very hard to move here and be effective in ministry. It's much better to train people who to, to bring people into ministry who already live and work in New York and then get them into training that way. That way they're already acclimated. And there wasn't anything, in other words, it just wasn't good enough to send them somewhere else and then bring them here. And um, <clears throat> so in order to do that, we said, we, we, we figured out what that would take. And one of the things it would take would be the, actually me stepping out of being the center of Redeemer, because frankly, I, I keep them, you know, in some ways I'm, I'm a bottleneck. Yeah. And if you really want to divide Redeemer and you really want, you know, lots of new leaders to grow up and lots of people sent out to start lots of new churches, you've got to get... I got to pivot out and become the trainer mentor. I, I'm the person who who mentor and teach people what I've done over the years, and I get out of the way of the other people who are able to grow, rise up and take leadership. So that's it in a nutshell. Even though it's not, that's a pretty big nutshell. I know it sure. took a long time, but that's that's it. Takes unity. It takes everybody involved. It can't be like two or three mega churches, uh, you know, do something and everybody else ignores them because it's, that's their. You you have to get everybody. I mean, you literally have to get virtually everybody on board if you're going to do this, and I, I'm hoping we can. Well, Dr. Keller, that's uh, incredibly encouraging. It, it on a much smaller scale, it, it reminds me a little bit of. Uh, what we're trying to do here at the village with campus transitions, where we have at this point we have five uh, multi-site campuses, and our hope with each one of those campuses is eventually to transition them off to become local autonomous churches, and and so there is a training component to that. But yep. as, as you talked about, it, this is this is a lot bigger scale, and so I appreciate the vision coming from you guys that just pushes on our vision, maybe to to even kind of broaden it to get a little bit bolder and think a little bit bigger as it relates to Dallas-Fort Worth. So, Well, I, let, let me be so bold as to say uh, the great advantage of, of that we have here is that the body of Christ, and I'm, defi- I'm defining the body of Christ as sort of evangelical slash Pentecostal. I'm being generous. You know, I'm not, talk- I'm not just talking about, for example, Reformed evangelicals. I'm talking about just evangelicals. The good, thing, the good and the bad thing about New York is that we're so weak. We're so small. And because of that, you didn't have entrenched empires. And actually, I think we have probably more unity than any big city in the country. And what's hard about actually bringing everybody together to move the whole needle and reach the city is, I don't know of any other city where you don't have, you have more successful churches and they're just not going to work together. They're going to say, well, that's their, in other words, everybody, they, they, they pop out their own kind of church. They'll yeah. put millions of dollars into their own kind of church, but we want to put millions of dollars into other denominations' churches too, and that's very, very unusual and and almost politically impossible in most places. So, do you think? Do you think the for for the rest of evangelicalism, thinking about kind of coast to coast, do do you think this kind of increased wave? And in, but I, I think it's breaking down there. But like in Dallas, we're we're experiencing probably what. New York experienced 20 years ago in regards to the loss of cultural and political capital. Like the South is just now feeling that. Are there, right. are there some ways that that's going to catalyze us and, and break down some of this kind of 
imperialism down here, this kind of empire building where this this church is, you know, 20,000 people and has their own school and college? And uh, do you think that the increased uh, wave of marginalization does something that breaks those things down? Yeah. Yes. In fact, <clears throat> I know a little bit about Dallas because everybody who's a Christian knows something about Dallas. Um, <laughs> here's what I'd say, younger people, there is a great desire on the part of, even in Dallas, which, which is as well furnished with Christian churches and institutions as any, any city in the country, no doubt. if not more. Um, even Dallas, maybe Atlanta is another place where you have, you know, the same kind of level of, you know, big, maybe not either. Anyway, the point is that I know in Dallas that the younger Christians, and they are very, very interested in unity. Yeah. They also feel more beleaguered. In other words, they feel, hey, the, you know, the society's slipping away. We need to get together, and we need to rethink how we do things, and we've got to be much more unified. I'm, I'm afraid in a place like Dallas, but most other places, people my age just don't see it. They don't feel it. Um, they, uh, they're much, much more parochial. They're much more entrenched in their own institution, their own denomination. Uh, and they and they they would find it just crazy for a Baptist church to start a Presbyterian church. They would say, "No way, we're not doing that." Um, I do think a younger Baptist church might actually start. I mean, we started a church in Germany. We brought a guy here, and he, we trained him in everything. And at the very end, I tried him to get him to believe in believers' bapt. I mean, in baby baptism, in infant baptism, and make him Presbyterian, and he couldn't quite do it. I just can't do it, he said. So what did we do? Well, we. <laughs> <laughs> we started we started a church in Berlin that's been very very successful and guess what it's it's part of the evangelical free church now it's not it doesn't do you know it's believers baptism only uh and of course I get plenty of heat there's no doubt I get lots of heat for that it's like well you're really not committed to your presbyterianism well here's the point i mean i know it's going to be humorous I look at New York City i look at the world and i say you know what i don't think we're going to reach the world with just presbyterian churches i don't know anybody who thinks they are if you really care about reaching a city or a country or a world, you've got to Can keep in mind that for whatever reason, God has decided that there's different kinds of people that tend to go to these different kinds of churches. Yep. That the different denominations and networks and things tend to reach certain kinds of people. We, we're always working as much as possible for diversity, but there's a limit. And every single one of these churches tends to have reach certain kinds of people. If you want to reach everybody, you've got to work together. So I just, anyway, I do think younger people in Dallas feel, they feel the, the change in the weather. Older people do not. And they also are much more willing to work to, together across those traditional lines, and older people are not. In New York, frankly, there, there's only one kind of person, which is generally younger. <laughs> yeah. And we just don't have, we just don't have the, and I, listen, you're, you're a great big church. All I can tell you is Redeemer has tried and I, I think we're at least half successful, but not perfectly successful, at not becoming one more of those empires that basically just feathers its own nest and doesn't worry about the rest of the city. Let but me, it's very hard, yeah. very hard not to when you're big. Let you me ask that. you this uh, about this movement, and is there an interplay at all between the Center for Faith and Work and the RISE movement? Is these two things yeah. joining hands? If so, how? What does that look yeah. like? Yeah, actually, it's, it, we, right now we would say it's actually the New York Project is a partnership between Redeemer City to City, which, as most of you don't know, but most of my listeners need to know, that Redeemer had something called a church planting center 
inside. It was a department of Redeemer. And we helped other churches get started and some of our own churches get started over the years. And about seven years ago or maybe eight years ago, um, it, it, it got its own board and its own 501c3. Uh, 501c3. And so it is now a, um, um, a separate entity with its own board. But we're very, very joined. I mean, they, we, we, we share the same office space, et cetera, but we're very, very joined. And City to City is an expert in starting churches in great big global cities around the world, not just New York. And it also has a very, very high success rate, like 93%. But it's, it's unlike Acts 29, it, it, uh, which is an expert to also in church planting, but as you know, City to City does cities, period. Yeah. And that's where we feel like that's our value add, that's our expertise, and um, so it is actually a partnership between re- the Redeemer Churches and Redeemer City to City. It also helps, by the way, to work. Redeemer City to City is non-denominational, and so that's another way it makes it possible to work with a, across the, you know, across the city. So talk a little bit about because I'm I'm always intrigued by hearing you talk about the relationship between the church and cities. So can you chat just a little bit about? Where you you see that in the scriptures and and why? Because really, you've banked your life on this. Uh, I mean, you've spent decades now, kind of helping your church see, and then in, and in a real way, helping other churches see kind of the value of the city and and what it means to yeah. be a church that's for the city. So, can you chat a little bit about the relationship between churches and cities, and 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 where we see that in the scriptures? And well, yeah, you know, the uh, if you look up. I guess I'm trying to think about where you'd see this. There's not a lot of uh, there's not lots and lots of scholarship on the biblical view of the city. Uh, you know, the, the the there's one reference book called the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery, great big university press book. If you look up the city there, there's actually a great article that points out that um, uh, the city. In the Old Testament, the city is relatively negative in its in the way it, you know uh, you know Lot, for example, goes to live in the cities, and Abraham stays away from the cities, and you know Abraham's great, Lot didn't do well. Um, uh, but then when they move into the Promised Land, uh, God in, God insists that they build some cities called cities of refuge because cities are places where you actually had jurisprudence, where you had trials, you didn't just have vigilante justice. Uh, cities have always been places of civilization, so God actually commands them to build some cities. Jerusalem is supposed to be um, a, an urban society that that shows the world the glory of God. But then, when they when they go into exile, when they lose the the nation state, and they go to Babylon, suddenly they're told they're supposed to seek the peace of the city. Yeah. And I could I could get some real uh, I, I could spend time, which I won't, to show that. That when the Jews were exiles, they were supposed to seek the peace of the great big city and not be afraid of it, not stay outside of Babylon, but go in there, uh, maintain their cultural identity, and yet serve the the, uh, the prosperity and peace, the shalom of the city. We are exiles too. I mean, when the Jews were exiles, that was their attitude toward the city. Christians are all exiles. That's First Peter one one, James one one. We're all resident aliens. And uh, and in in the book of Acts, when you get to the book of Acts, you see. Christians going to cities to do missions. Yep. Because in the as as the years have gone by, even within the space of Old to New Testament, certainly today, cities have actually become more and more uh, crucial to setting the course of how human life is lived. And here's here's my bottom line. Edward Glazer, 
of Harvard University says that across the world, five million people a month are moving from the countryside into cities cumulatively. That's like a new San Francisco Bay Area every month. Stunning. Um, across the world. Now, here, how many churches do you need to reach San Francisco Bay? I don't know. If you know the Bay Area, San Francisco, I don't know. But are we planting that many churches in cities every month? No. And so here's the bottom line. The people of the world are moving into cities faster than the church is. You need churches everywhere there's people, but the people of the world are moving into the city faster than the church is, and that's just not right. Yeah. And so, I mean, even, even just on the basis of plain old-fashioned demographics, I don't even really... All you have to get from the Bible is you need to save the lost, and then you take a look at the demographics and you realize the cities are underserved by the church. We need to be, we, we need to be spending more time and effort to reach cities. I, I think that's the case. And is that because where you have flourishing churches in city centers, you begin what you also teach quite a bit, uh, this, this idea of cultural renewal, and, and then because of those churches existing and the people in those churches more than likely being involved in culture making because that's what flows yeah. out of the city, that, that's where we get this idea of cultural renewal? Right. You're, yeah, you're right. There's probably three reasons we ought to reach cities. I gave you the one that's the least controversial. The fact is, if you want to save the lost, people are moving to cities faster than the church is moving, then we're, we're falling behind. And I don't know anybody who has ever tried to refute that argument. Uh, the second argument is the fact that the cities set the course of the culture. And frankly, the most organic and God-honoring way where you really let God do it instead of us trying to do it, the best way to take back the culture, if the, I shouldn't even use that term, the best way to influence the culture is not through politics and deciding through public policy, you know, what is a what is a God-honoring society look like. Probably the best way to do it is to lift up the Word of God and convert people in the cultural centers and then teach them to be disciples in every area of life, tell them that they need to integrate their faith in their, in their work, and then they go in. And see, if 15, 20% of the people on Wall Street in the arts, in publishing, you know, in TV, in the media... Changes the game. In the found, yeah, I mean, it'll just happen. But the trouble is, we're not 20% or 15%. We're 15, 20% outside of the cultural centers. In the cultural centers, we're like 1%. So the second thing is just be there. And the third is, by the way, there's a lot of injustice in cities. There's a lot of need. There's a lot of the the poor. If you care about the poor, you should go to cities. If you care about the culture, you should go to cities. If you care about saving the lost, you ought to go to cities. So there we are. Let me ask you this just about that and thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm... in a suburban context, and and when I think about cities, I'd, I'd like to hear you speak to two points here. The first one is this, is recognizing that our suburbs are being, over time, filled with people who have been discipled by the city. Uh, you have young professionals who move to a city. Uh, yeah. They spend time, formative years there. They're discipled up by the liturgies and the culture of that particular city. They may uh, have a family, expand, can't afford to live there any longer, whatever, and move out to the suburbs, but they bring those city values with them. So it's not as if if you're in a suburban context that you can be devoid or a lack of understanding about the impulses that come out of that city. Could you speak to that? Yeah. And by the way, it's not just young professionals that start in the city and come out to the suburbs. It's also immigrants. Yeah. So what the other see the city's like the heart pumping things out into the rest of the of the country, um, and you're absolutely right that very often young people tend to go to cities when they're single and then they get they 
and they get married and have children they, they, they comes out to the suburbs but immigrants too they, they come into immigrant communities where the people know the same language and they and they help one another get into the American culture but at a certain point very often they'll leave the enclave and move out into the into the mainstream and they'll move out too but you're absolutely right is then urban well there's a third thing and that is technology you may never live in a city but today technology uh, connects especially young people to these urban centers so it used to be I mean frankly a, you know, a young person in Iowa who's never been in a big city at all is almost as urbanized as, as a teenager living in New York because they're really they're in, they're basically uh, you know imbibing the same material and so because of technology because of immigration patterns and because of this movement from the inside out um, yeah, it, the point is you really got to care about cities because it affects the way things work in your suburb. And my brother, you're also right in saying you probably need to essentially know how to minister to urbanites to at least a certain degree, no matter where you are, because they're going to be in your church too. Yeah, so answer, Dr. Keller, spend just a moment or two kind of tying together um, the gospel and cultural renewal. And, and the reason I'm, I'm asking that, I think I've got two things in view. The, uh, one is that, that people have a tendency to create a false dichotomy that, that these two things are way away from one another in what they are and, and, and their relationship to one another. So can you talk a little bit about how these two are kind of uh, fitted together? Yeah, the story I tell, I, I, I told a story uh, one day after uh, a, um, a service, a woman came up, and I was chatting with her. She clearly wasn't a Christian. She'd been brought here um, to um, – she, she was visiting Redeemer. And I said, how did you find the place? And then she told me this story. She said it was a guy who had um, uh, – she worked for uh, and at a major uh, network, by the way, a major network. I think it was ABC or NBC or something like that. And she made, uh, she was new in the job, and she made a really pretty bad mistake, and she thought she was going to lose her job. He was very highly regarded, and he had a lot of, you might say, capital, and so he went in and he took the, he took the blame for her. And um, uh, he, you know, he kind of got hurt a little bit by it, but he decided to do it, and he came back, and so it hurt. He said, it wasn't her fault. I didn't train her, da, da, da. So she, he came back and said, you got your job, you know, and she was very grateful, and she kept pressing him and saying, look, I've been working in New York for a long time, and I, I, see, I see bosses constantly um, taking credit for what I've done, but never taking the blame for what I've done. Why did you do that? And she kept pressing him, and he was very, very slow to finally say, okay, look, I'm a Christian. I'm going to tell you this once, and only because you pushed me. <laughs> I'm a Christian, and you I believe I have to actually bear more pain than I inflict in work, even though everybody here believes basically the way you get ahead in New York is you, is you inflict more pain than you bear. I believe that, uh, but I have a Savior who, who took the blame for me. And therefore, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, that this, in the long run, this is probably good for you. It's probably good for our relationship. It's probably good for productivity, what I've just done, and probably is good for work. But even if it wasn't, I do it because it's right. And she says, do you go to church? Where do you go to church? <laughs> now, listen, the gospel, the gospel have anything to do with that, with, with the way in which that person was managing uh, his, his work? Yes, of course it was. I mean, she had to press him to say, you're different. 
Yeah. The gospel is going to affect every single part of life. You train people to think out how it affects every part of life, then if you are in culturally significant places, it's going to affect the culture. If you're not as much, it might not as much, but the fact is that, by the way, every job creates culture, as you know. I mean, yeah. if you read Andy Crouch's book, yeah. every job creates culture. But the more significant ones in places like L.A. and New York and places like that, if you have more Christians in it, it'll, the gospel will have an impact on culture. So... Um just a quick question. I know we're we're running out of time here, but so maybe we could just land the plane with this question. I, do, do you think some of this argument that that kind of tries to separate these two uh, out in real definitive ways is is more of a loss of the view of the kingdom of God as opposed to kind of a linear um, gospel understanding versus the more holistic kingdom of God idea as we've understood it historically and. You know what? Some people are going to say that's, that you're leading the witness. I am. Because, well, in this sense, some people wouldn't say it's a kingdom of God problem because the kingdom of God, essentially, the way in which you further the kingdom is you build up the church. Yeah. You know, I mean, people just, they debate the nature of the kingdom. Yeah. Now, I would agree with what's behind your question, but I, not everybody agrees with that. I, I think probably that this, the, the problem is what is the role of the church? Yeah. So Redeemer says, I'm discipling people to change the world. I mean, in other words, as a pastor, Redeemer's discipling people to change the world. The church is not trying to change the world. That's Our job is just to preach the gospel. But you can't disciple people unless you disciple them to bring Christ into every area of their lives, and they go out and change the world. So you might call it the difference between the church gathered and the church scattered. Is it the job of the church gathered to, to you know, change the culture? I don't think so so directly, no. It's, I mean, I think it's the job to do the Word and the sacraments. But on the other hand, you are supposed to be discipling people with the knowledge that they will probably change the culture. And therefore, um, and you see, I just sidestepped the, the kingdom thing, because even though I agree with the way you're using the word kingdom, I know a lot of people don't. As do I, so brother. I, I, and I don't <laughs> want to just say, well, they're, they're wrong. I mean, yeah. they've got their points of view. No, I, I totally, totally agree. Well, Dr. Keller, thank you so much. I know your schedule is just jammed full, and so that you would take some time and spend it with us. That it was yeah. really generous. So we thank you. By the that. way, uh, can I just do two other things? Sure. We we are partnering and have partnered with two X twenty nine churches here in the city. No, I'm I'm aware of that. Out. Love it. Yeah, you know, we, in other words, we are right now trying to help them plant daughter churches. We're going to support them in that. I just want you to know that. And by the way, anybody really saying what is this all about? What was this rise? It's rise.redeemer.com. Yeah. Get backslash give if you want to look at it, but rise.redeemer.com. Yeah, and I'd encourage and you, you to do that. He He's saying what, what is true and right as the president of 829. I know personally that they are vested and training and helping and helping fund um, churches that, that are serious about the Bible, serious about Jesus, serious about seeing people come to know and love him. So, all right, Dr. Keller, thank you for being on with us. Uh, we're grateful for you and uh, praying about Rise and about you're stepping into the training kind of Yoda mode that you're Yoda headed mode. to now. Yoda mode. Maybe we could do that. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I'll, I'll try to do my best to forget that, but <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I thanks, mean, Dr. Keller. Forget the term, but thanks yes, for everything, sure. everybody. Thank uh-huh. you. Blessings. Now we're jumping into our Ask TVC question where we try to address some questions that uh, folks have sent in. The first one comes from James Wiederstein. And he says this, Matt. Is it Steen or Stein? Stein, Steen. It's from James. James. James sent this in. 
Is faith purely a gift from God, or is it something we grow by consistently engaging in spiritual disciplines? Maybe it's both? Yeah, so, so. yeah I saw you go up on that. It, mm-hmm. It's a great question. I think you, if we're talking about the faith that saves you, right. the Scriptures are clear that, that that is a gift of God. That faith to believe in grace so is Ephesians a gift. Too. Yeah, it, so Ephesians 2. Yeah. from God. If you're talking about faith in regards to belief, justification, regeneration, then, then yes— that is purely a gift from God so that no one can boast, right? That's Ephesians 2. But but I think if you're talking about faith in regards to progressive sanctification and believing in the promises of God, preaching the gospel to yourself and walking by faith that God can be taken at his word, then then I think, man, you're, you're growing in that faith by consistently engaging in spiritual disciplines, by knowing what the Word of God says, by praying, by preaching the gospel to yourself, by memorizing Scripture so the mind informs the heart and the heart informs the mind. So he, he, he's right to ask maybe it's both because it, it is both. The faith to believe, to be saved, to be regenerate, to be made new is a gift from God, but then faith is exercised. But you, you also have this other category in the Scriptures where um, there's a measure of faith given. Uh, and so that factors into this equation somewhere also, where, where one is given a greater gift of faith and exercises that gift um, differently than someone's given a less um, portion, I, I guess. So it's like, a, it's like a volume knob that sometimes yeah. faith can be turned up in certain seasons, circumstances, situations, but it, I think it's so. fundamentally present the yes. whole time. So that's good. Good question, James. Thanks for sending that in. Blake Aldridge at Blake Aldridge asked this, how should Christians react to businesses like Target promoting transgenders using public bathrooms of choice? And, you know, there's somewhat of a complex question because the reality is uh, we're going to be hard pressed to find organizations, companies, entities that do it just the way that we want it. I mean, you can't go to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee because Starbucks uh, at some degree uh, espouses values that uh, would be uh, not maybe hostile to Christianity, anti-biblical, or certainly not in line with biblical values. And you could just kind of, PayPal would say the same thing. Apple would say the same the same thing. And it, the list goes on and on. So the question is, what do you do in light of this specific place? And and I would answer that and, and would love the conversation here, Matt. If, if you conscientiously object to this specific thing with this specific company, this specific entity, organization, whatever it may be, then by faith, you do need to do what you need to do. Yeah. Um, but I also think it should humble us to think really what the culture is saying. And, and you're going to be hard-pressed to, to, to go anywhere in the culture and it be, quote-unquote, safe yeah. uh, or aligned or God-honoring. And so uh, what what the Christian is called to do is to step into spaces and be salt and light. Yeah. And um, but, I, but there are certain things and there are certain places and companies and, and entities and organizations that by faith I simply cannot uh, be a patron of any longer. And Blake, if that's you or somebody else, then uh, certainly I would affirm that in this brother or sister who may feel that particular way. Yeah, so I, I think the argument for... Um, the the boycott or or whatever is that because of this specific issue and the time in which we live, this is one of those ways that we want to let businesses know that we we won't play in in this space and and so I can kind of 
I get a sense of of the call for the boycott, but then I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna very quickly circle around and go. I want to be known as a man that preaches the truth, who lives by the truth of the Word of God. But I don't want to be known as a guy that's always protesting everything. Um, and so I want to make it my ambition to live a quiet life, um, to work hard, to love my wife, uh, to be a model citizen. Um, and to push back the darkness in any way I can. But I, I don't think that works with me constantly expecting the lost world to, to behave in a Christian way. And, and so for those that would bring up like the Reformation and those kind of things where Christian protest actually yielded really good fruit, it's interesting to note, though, that, that Luther and Calvin, their, their, their protest was against the church, not against the world for behaving like the world behaves. And so I think there, there's something in Jesus's high priestly prayer here about being um, that that we're not to be taken out of the world, but rather to be kept from the evil one while we lived while in, we live it. in it. And yeah. so, so I, I'm I, we have not boycotted Target. Uh, I don't know that we plan to boycott Target. Uh, we, I mean, it's right in kind of our little heart of sinner city here in our neck of the woods. And uh, again, I don't want to be known as a protester. Yeah, and if I could just encouraged towards a posture, regardless of what one's decision is as it relates to target, would be humility and understanding the weight and complexity of the issue, especially as it begins to splinter out into other organizations that we may be patrons of who do the very same things that we may not be aware of. Yeah. And and so there is a, maybe a latent hypocrisy in some of our actions towards one entity when we would celebrate another one, yeah. um, unbeknownst to us that they they too are involved. And so uh, yeah, don't become what we, we hate here and what we even see the secular world doing where you've got artists that refuse to play in North Carolina but are more than willing to play in Saudi Arabia, totally. right? Yeah. So, and, and then last, just a last note, I, I think that to be kind, beautifully kind to those who work at Target or who make their living um, as just a, a clerk or, you know, the, the man or woman that's out getting the baskets and moving them in. And I think we just don't want to be known as protesters and we don't want to be known uh, as those who belittle and attack. And But we want to be known as gracious people yeah, who mirror well, yeah, yeah, the beauty of the gospel. That's good. Uh, let, me, let me touch on this one. Enrique Polo asked this, and it's, it's a little bit of a longer question, where he says, what does it look like to forgive someone who is unrepentant of their sin against you? How do you forgive someone when they've offended you by your offer of forgiveness because they believe that their sin against you was justified? Is it enough to leave the matter in God's hands and simply walk away? And uh, th- This one, Enrique, I pastorally would just encourage somebody, and I'm and, and encouraging you in this, to consider... Uh, the idea of forbearance. Forbearance is the idea of patience and kindness where you are for an extended period of time and and withholding something. Uh, and, and in this case, forbearance is often seen where God is withholding punishment towards a people in hopes that they would repent. And as we think about his kindness to us where he He did, he forbear, he, he, he held back, that there is a sense in which even if someone has not repented, uh, to me for their wrong, that for me to be entrenched in my own rightness in that particular situation and withhold the extension of forgiveness is is to give a foothold for bitterness to take yeah. root in my heart, is uh, to potentially give a foothold for an increased self-righteousness rather than uh, I'm going to extend something to someone who is not going to give me something in return. And uh, oftentimes that's, that's one of the more beautiful displays 
of grace in the gospel where I, I'm not giving because I'm thinking I'm going to get something in return. I'm going to give because this is the fruit of what God's grace has done in my life. And so I will extend forgiveness even to one who is unrepentant. And so Matt Noel Perina Randall asked this, in the upcoming series on Exodus, are you going to spend a sermon on grumbling? She said our souls need it. Okay. Um, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I don't think I'm going to do... In fact, I know at this point there's no plan to spend an entire sermon on grumbling. We will highlight the grumbling um, in, in such a way that, that here we are, if you will, in the wilderness between the promised land, but having been delivered from slavery, and and we still grumble. And so we'll, we'll bring that up on multiple occasions, that that there's a tendency in the space between to grumble, uh, to forget what happened behind, and to forget really what we're moving towards. But but I don't think I'll spend a full—in fact, I know I won't spend a full message just on grumbling— um, but but I agree with you that, that that almost all of us have a tendency. Gosh, I have a tendency to 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 grumble at times, forgetting what's behind and forgetting what's ahead. So that's good. Looking forward to the series. I just want to remind you if there's anything you heard us talk about on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can certainly find those details on our website, thevillagechurch.net. You can look at the episode descriptions on our podcast show page. On our next episode, we're going to have a special guest, James K.A. Smith. Pumped about that one. Yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, where we're going to talk about uh, liturgy, formation, and his new book, You Are What You Love. I'm reading it right now, really enjoying it. If you have a question, let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTVC. We'll try to answer those, at least a handful, every episode. See you next time. God bless. Blessings. Blessings.